0: Maybe you're familiar with that movie, maybe you're not. If you have children, you probably are. If you don't, you may not be. But anyway, Polar Express, you remember the movie? Polar Express was all about a group of children who got on the Polar Express, a train that goes to the North Pole in order to learn to believe. The problem was they did not believe in Santa, and so they get on the train, and they head up there, and they believe. Now, here's the thing I really like. On that, set, that scene we just saw, you heard the hero boy saying what? I believe. I believe. What is not on there is the next line in the movie that I think is pretty incredible. In fact, I wrote it down so I'd get it right. After he says, I believe, the train conductor, who's been instructing them the whole way, the train conductor says, seeing is believing. But sometimes the most real things in the world are things we can't see. Isn't that good? Seeing is believing, okay. But sometimes the most real things in the world are things we can't see. Very true, isn't it? And yet sometimes we struggle with believing. We have a hard time believing. We struggle with doubt about all kinds of things. And in particular, things of faith. And so, isn't it interesting that we're here in a Christmas season, in a time that should indeed build our faith, but oftentimes the Christmas season is a time when we struggle with faith? After all, it's a pretty incredible story that heaven has come, that is, that God stepped out of heaven to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. How does that all compute? Sometimes we have doubt, sometimes we have difficulty, and sometimes we just plain struggle. But here's what I want to talk about today, and I think it'll help us kick off our series. And here it is, simply. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to struggle with doubt as long as we don't settle on unbelief. Now, I'll kind of unpack that as we go, but I want you to think about it today. I think most of us have periods of doubt. In fact, I'm not sure that there's any of us who can say, Oh, I've never doubted anything. We struggle with doubt, but it's okay to struggle with doubt as long as we don't settle on unbelief. There is a difference, and we'll talk about that as we go. Now, I'm excited about this series because we're talking about the missing characters of Christmas. The ones who are missing. And what we mean by that simply is those who are missing from a typical nativity set, right? You have a nativity whether you draw it or whether it's a set or or, or whether you put it together or built it or whatever. Whether it's something that's sitting in your yard or under your tree or on a shelf in your house. We all know that Christmas time brings the nativity sets, right? And we always, every nativity... Has what? A baby in the manger, right? And every nativity has a Mary and a Joseph. And every nativity, or most nativities then, will add shepherds and maybe a sheep and will add cattle in the stall or maybe even a camel. Some will even add wise men and their camels and their gifts. But I want to talk about. Some of the missing characters, some of the characters that haven't made it into our nativity set and yet are just as critical to the Christmas story as all the rest. There's several of them. And we'll look at them for the next few weeks as we approach Christmas Day. Today we're going to start with a couple. And the couple is maybe known to you, maybe not known to you. But I can't believe, I can't say that I've ever, I will say, won't say they never. I can say I have never seen them in the nativity. Their names are Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zachariah and Elizabeth, a godly couple. A couple who 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 walked in righteousness we'll see that in the scripture who, whose son was filled with the Spirit before he was even born a righteous family a religious family but we'll see they struggled they struggled in several areas and among the areas that they struggled in was doubt they struggled with whether or not they would believe God In a very critical moment in their lives now immediately. I'm thinking this becomes very relevant to me Because I have always had moments of struggle in my life in my faith walk now I hope that doesn't just tear you apart or think oh my we better get another pastor This one has struggled with his life. Well. I'm going to tell you something I'm going to tell on all the other pastors who may not say it. They've all struggled too We all do, right? We've had moments when we struggle with doubt. The difference is, where are we going to land? Are we going to land in unbelief or are we going to land in belief? So let's go to our Bibles and let's take a look at this early couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Their story is found in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Now, when I say the Gospel of Luke, for those of you who are Bible students, you're going to know some things right away. First of all, you're going to know that Luke is a writer who gives us great detail. By the way, that's a real blessing to us, because his details verify many of the truths of the gospel story, many of the truths of the first Christmas story, many of the truths of Jesus' latter days. And by the way, those are important because they have been confirmed today, archaeologically, historically, so that we don't have to just wonder about the reality of all of this. You may doubt whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, But nobody doubts that he really lived you may doubt that he was God become man But nobody doubts that he was born in Bethlehem because partially at least of Luke's precision So I'm glad we're gonna see some important things from dr. Luke and learn some lessons We're gonna begin reading in verse 5 if you brought your Bible or you can look at it on the screen Either way, you would rather do it. I always encourage you to bring a Bible along with you. I don't know about you. I like to write in mine. Mine's all messed up. It's all written up, marked up, colored up. Anything that will help me remember important truths that God showed me while speaking to me. You don't have to. You can have it on your phone, your tablet, or you can follow along up here on the screen. So let's begin reading in verse number 5. It says, In the days of King Herod of Judea, All right, stop. There's Luke coming through for us, right? Because he's telling us, I'm going to date. What I'm about to tell you, I'm giving a date to. This is not a fable. This is not a story. This is not just a tradition that's been passed down. I'm telling you specifically that in the days of King Herod... And later, of course, archaeology, history would prove that there was a King Herod who did rule over Judea. And so he dates it very specific for us. We also will learn that it was before the time that Christ was born. Look what happens. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. Now, stop there a minute. Zechariah, we're told, is a priest. You know what that means? A priest he was a priest in in the religion the faith of Judaism he served in Jerusalem Um, you know what scholarship tells us and and we never could just verify this or nail it down specifically but scholars believe that there were as many as 18,000 priests serving in Jerusalem at this particular time so there were a lot of priests and they served in the temple area that was his job his wife were told is from the line of Aaron the priest and so we have this priest and and, and wife of a priest. And, 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 and then we're told that they were both righteous in God's sight because they, were, they, they kept all the commands, the requirements of the Lord. So they're righteous. They're very religious. They're doing everything that the Torah asks of them or speaks to them about. So they're very religious. They're very righteous. And I say that because in the next verse we see their struggle with some things in life. Now, why is that important? Because somehow people get in their mind today that when we are religious or righteous, declared by faith in Christ, we don't struggle in life. And then we doubt further and we're saying, well, I must not be a Christian because I struggle with my life. Well, guess what? Even people of faith struggle. Even people of faith have struggles in life. Even people of faith have moments when the card's just not falling right to me. You know what I'm saying? Even people of faith struggle with the circumstances of life. Life's not fair. Life's not fair. It's not good. You know, we all struggle with that. And so they struggle. Look at the next verse, and you see a little bit of their struggle. It says, they had no children. Because Luke says, Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were well along in years. Now, maybe I'm a little imagining here. Maybe I'm getting ahead. I don't think so. But I'm pretty sure that was a struggle. And a day when those children were very, very important, they had none. And they were struggling with that. They were trying to believe God. But they had gotten old in years. Still no children. No doubt she's beyond the time of childbearing. They'd been praying. They'd been praying for a child. You'll see how I know that in a minute. They'd been praying for a child, but God, heaven was silent. Hmm. Anybody been there before? As a believer, as a follower of Christ, when you've prayed and God was silent, you thought, God, where are you? Where have you been? Why aren't you speaking now? Are you ever going to answer? We've all been there, haven't we? If you haven't, by the way, don't worry. You'll get there. You'll you'll share in that moment. He says. They struggled. No children. And go on to the next verse. It says in verse 8, when his division was on duty, he moves on to the story now, when his division was on duty and he was serving his priest before God, it happened that, I love that phrase, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn incense. Now, don't you love that? It happened, it happened one day that he was chosen. What have we learned Church, you ought to be able to say this by now. I say it so many times, you ought to know it. It just so happened, never just happens. God is a sovereign God who's in complete control. And even if it looks like things are chaotic, and even if it looks like all the decks are stacked against you, even if it looks like there's no way God could be in all this, listen to me carefully, it just so happens, never just happens. And it didn't just never happen on this day. It came to pass. It came about. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Because this day, something was going to happen in the temple that was different than all the rest. And Zechariah is the one who approaches the temple. On this day, it happened that he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter into the sanctuary. Now that means that of these, okay, let's just say 18,000 priests, they had to decide who was going to go into the temple. That was a privilege. Who was going to go in to burn the incense? Who was going to go in to take the duty? So they decided with a system to draw lots. Now, I don't know how that happened. I'm not sure if it were by casting of some dye. I don't know if it was through a draw. I don't know how, but somehow they cast lots to decide who would get to go into the temple that day. And finally, Zechariah's number came up. It's a big day for Zachariah. By the way, once they went in, once their number was chosen, they went in. That was the only time. They never went in again. So this was his big day. He'd waited all of his priesthood for this moment. He's the one going into the temple. He's the one that's chosen. It's his turn. And so, he goes into the temple. And watch what happens. I love what happens. Verse 10. It says, At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Stop right there. I want to read on. I'm going to read a lot of the story to you because I want you to see it right there in the Bible. But listen to me carefully. Here's what happened. He comes into the temple. It's his big day. It's his big moment. He's waited all of his life for this. And he knows it's the only chance there will be no tomorrow. Been my luck. I'd have been sick on that day, right? I mean, that's just the way you think. But he goes in. Everything is going good. But when he walks into the temple, here's the thing, guys. Nobody's supposed to be in there, right? Nobody's supposed to be in there. He's the only one that's going in. It's his day. It's his assignment. And the priest goes in, and suddenly there is an angel standing there. Later, we're going to find not just any angel. It's Gabriel. Gabriel, the the strong one of God in in the Hebrew. The mighty angel Gabriel, the same one that we're told later would announce to Mary, her conception. And the, the same one who's mentioned several times in Scripture, one of the archangels of God, Gabriel, and it says Zechariah was scared to death. (laughs) I bet he was. By the way, I think it reminds us that angels... Don't necessarily look like the cutesy little ones we put on our trees right now I'm not saying they'll, they'll take all the angels off your tree or your wall We all love angels, but they're they're probably not gonna look quite like your Hallmark cards or your Christmas decorations Because every time we see a man see an angel or a woman see an angel. You know what the first word of the angel is? fear not Don't be afraid why because it's a scary thing He sees this angel in the temple. He's afraid Wait a minute, I've been waiting all my life for this, but I didn't know I was going to get to talk to an angel. So Gabriel is prepared, and Gabriel says to him, don't be afraid, your prayer has been heard. And then he gets specific. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. <laughs> what? Um, I, got, I don't think I heard you right, Gabriel. Did you say, yep, your prayer is answered your wife will have a baby and his name will be John that's a pretty unusual name for them actually there's no one his family named John why would I call him John? That's not particularly something that would be special. Why, why John? But that's the name the angel gives him. And his mind, I can see it. I don't think I'm imagining this. He's, he's beginning to churn this through in his head. But the angel continues. And he describes for him this, this situation with his baby. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. What? People are going to know about the birth of my baby, the son. And and people are going to rejoice and delight. And verse 15 says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him. Oh, watch this. In the spirit and power of Elijah. That's important. I'll tell you in a minute. He goes before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Prepared for what? Now here's where the tide of Christmas starts. You're thinking, what does this have to do with the Christmas story? Everything. And here's where it starts. When the angel announces to Zechariah this son... John, and then begins to tell him about his son and how his son is going to prepare the people of God in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Zechariah knows exactly what he's saying, I believe. I really think he knows, Jimmy, because here's the thing. Zechariah is a priest of God. Zechariah knew the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew the Torah, and he kept that Torah religiously. He knew the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And he knew the Neveim, the prophets. And he had read of the prophets. He understood the prophets, men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And, oh yeah, by the way, a man named Malachi. You remember Malachi? Malachi has a book, a prophecy in the Old Testament, and it falls last in the Old Testament. It's the last book in the Old Testament. I want to go there because I want to read a part of it to you that relates to this and show you how it ties with Christmas. You might want to turn there if you'd like. In Malachi, it's the last book of your Bible. Go to the the Old Testament, I'm sorry. Go to the last book, go to the last chapter, and then find the last paragraph. So it's some of the last words of Malachi, and I want you to see what happens. In verse 5, here's what Malachi prophesies. He says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts, does this sound familiar? The hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. What's God saying? He says to the prophet Malachi, Don't worry, a day's coming when Messiah will come, and before he comes, I'm sending a prophet. And the prophet will prepare the way of the Lord. He will come in the spirit and the power of Elisha. And he will prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Mashiach, Messiah. The people of Israel are waiting for Messiah. The interesting thing is those are the last words that we hear. Not only from Malachi. They're the last words that we hear from any of the writing prophets for 400 years. The promise comes. Messiah is coming. And then God goes silent. I'm going to send the Messiah preceded by a prophet. 400 years. Nothing's happened. People are waiting. Anxiously waiting. Waiting. Things are happening in Israel. Things are happening in those 400 years that you need to read about in your history books. But suffice it to say, the people are waiting and they're waiting and waiting. In fact, many young ladies were just dreaming that their son might be the Messiah. What if this boy that's born to me could possibly be the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah? And then, of course, they'd find out it wasn't. And so all of Israel waiting, 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 waiting. And now... Zechariah goes in just because he drew the right card. Ah, just so happened that he goes in on the day when Gabe no. Just so happened never just happens. He goes in and God's planning and Gabriel the prophet is there and Gabriel says, "Remember the one that Malachi wrote about? It's your son. And you're going to name him John." Well, what does this righteous, religious, smart priest of God say? Well, look at verse number... um, I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong page. Look at verse number 18. John says, how can I know this? The other translations, I think, put it very well. I'm using the CSB, but I like the other translations here that say, how can this be? Now, you know what I like about it? How can this be? Because I know the Christmas story. Some of you, I know some of you know the Christmas story. Some of you know that Christmas story, back and forward, and you remember that when Gabriel, the, the angel, spoke to Mary about her coming birth, what did she say? How can this be? How can this be, seeing I don't know a man? I've never known a man. How can this be? In other words, how can this be I'm a virgin? Well, Zachariah asked some real question. He says, uh, how can this be? For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Isn't that a nice way to put it? <laughs> I'm an old man and my wife is an old lady. Um, Gabe, I think you've got the wrong guy. I don't see it happening. I'm not sure that's going, that makes no sense to me. Now listen to me carefully. Know this, that when God speaks to your heart, when God moves in your life, and when God is ready to do something in your life, it's always going to bring you to a point that Henry Blackaby calls a crisis of belief. I love that term, the crisis of belief. You know, here's why I like it. Because when God works in your life and is preparing to move in your life, he brings you to a point of of decision-making. And he's going to speak into your life and the crisis for you is, are you going to believe or are you not going to believe? Here's what I've learned in my walk with God. Tell me if it's not true in yours. When God moves in our life, usually it is to bring us out of a place of comfort. It is to bring us into a place that we are not very uh, understanding of. In other words, it makes no sense to me. This just doesn't add up. This, here's the way to put it. This is not the way I would do it right? This is not the way I would, for all of you control freaks out there, he brings you to the point of saying, you got to let go. (laughs) And, And you're saying, this makes no sense to me. Let me tell you why. Because you see, the prophet said long ago that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. So don't be shocked when God speaks into your heart and you're like, no, that's not the way I would do it. Don't be shocked at all. He brings you to what Blackaby calls a crisis of belief. And you've got to decide which way you're going to go. Zechariah is at a crisis, a point of crisis of belief. Gabriel is saying, your wife is going to have a son. And it's going to be the forerunner to Messiah. His name is John. And Zechariah is at a point of crisis. Can I believe? Makes no sense to me. We're both old. Beyond the... And by the way... Do you know how long we've been trying to have children all these years and we've never been able to have them and now you're saying in our old age we're gonna have a son and and then you're saying not just any son but the forerunner to Messiah I don't understand that makes sense to me I'm not sure what he's doing is what he's been driven with doubt he's got doubt in his heart I'm not sure now listen to me carefully. Don't be shocked when you have doubt that stirs up in your heart. See, here's what I love about this passage, and here's what I love about this part of the story, is it reminds us that we all have moments of doubt when something that God wants to do just sounds really too big and too wild for me. There's some that struggle with this whole Christmas thing. Really? How does God, I don't want to put doubt in your mind, but here's some of the questions I've asked before. How does this doubt, I mean, how does this God step out of heaven and become a baby and still rule the universe? How does God wrap himself in flesh? Christ is a belief. It's okay to struggle with doubt as long as you don't settle on unbelief. And no, something's going to happen. Zechariah begins to question. The angel answers, verse 19. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak this to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you'll become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be filled in their proper time. So the story is Zachariah. Zechariah... Is saying to God, how can this be? I'm not sure I can accept this. And God gives him a clear sign. Zechariah can't speak. He can't say a word. Now, the story goes further, and I'll just tell it to you because I want to get to the end, too. in a minute. But the story goes that Zechariah then comes out of the temple. The people are all there. And by this time, the people are wondering what's taking so long. They know how long it goes in. Happens every day. They know how long it takes to take care of the incense. Happens every day. They know how long it should take Zachariah, But he's in there way too long. Why? Because he's having a, they don't know this, he's having a conversation with an archangel. They're wondering what's going on. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he died. Tradition says they would put rope around these priest's feet in case they had to drag them out for death I don't know. Maybe he had one around him. Maybe they were fixing the bull. I don't know but he finally comes out and They're waiting to hear from him what happened and I'm pretty sure he wanted to tell them if you just talked to an archangel I think you'd probably want to tell somebody But the problem is he can't talk and so he gestures with his hands to explain that he can't talk He goes home I'm sure he's wanting to tell Elizabeth. Hey, guess what? I don't, I'm not even going to let my mind go where that conversation might have gone. But I'm pretty sure it was a unique conversation. Because he's talking with his hands. He can't really talk. What's going on? And he explains to her what the angel said. And Life moves on. And she becomes pregnant. Hmm. Think about that just a moment. In fact, we can actually read about it. We can actually see what begins to happen and watch. It goes all the way over, if you're following your Bible, all the way over to the end of the chapter. In, in uh, verse number 50, 57, um, he says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, that was Jewish custom. You'll see Mary doing the same thing with Jesus when we get there in Luke chapter 2. Zechariah, well, I mean, I'm sorry, on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. Of course they would. We even do that today, right? I said in the first service, I may say, well, say it now. My name's Charles. Don't laugh. And whatever you do, don't go out of here and call me Pastor Charles, okay? But that's my name. Why? Because it's my dad's name. He's Charles. And so he says, you know what? We were going to call him Zachariah after his father. But his mother responded, no. He will be called John? John? Why are you going to call him John? Nobody in your family. They said to her, verse 61, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. And his father asked for a writing tablet, so he hasn't talked for nine months. At least. He hasn't spoken a word. He says, give me a tablet, I'll write it down. And when they give him the tablet, what does he write? His name is John. I love that verse. I I don't know. You know, we all have special verses that we like. I love that verse. His name is John. And everybody's shocked. Everybody's surprised. It says, they were all amazed. But immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. God. I bet you he did. I bet he sang like he had never sung before. I bet he spoke like he never spoke before. I bet his songs of praise and his prayer of praise and worship was like never before. For nine months he'd not been able to speak, and now his tongue is free and he begins to speak and praise God. First of all, hey, I can speak, but more importantly, I have a son. And that son is destined to be the forerunner of Messiah. Now, I don't know about you, but there's so much in this message that we could draw and so much from the story that we can draw. But if I could could pull it together and draw something from it, if I could just kind of give a takeaway, if I could just give you something to hold on to, something to kind of bring me in for a landing here, I think it would be something like this. I think we would have to say, Remember, it's okay to doubt as long as we don't settle on unbelief. But remember this, that your doubt is headed somewhere. Your doubt is headed somewhere. Your doubt is pushing you in a direction either to unbelief or to belief. I love the way one commentator wrote it. Let me just read it to you. I really like this. I thought it was really good. He said, in talking about this difference in doubt and unbelief, he said, Doubt is questioning what you believe. Unbelief is a determination to not believe. Let me say that again. Doubt is questioning what you believe. Unbelief is a determined refusal to believe. Doubt is a struggle faced by the believer. Unbelief is a condition... Of the unbeliever. So you see, there is a maybe a fine line of difference, but there is a difference in doubting what we believe and in refusing to believe. Now that's important because some, maybe in the room or at least in the sound of my voice, sometimes we confuse those two. Some of you are thinking, well, I got too much doubt. No, 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 be careful. Make sure that your doubt is not unbelief. Doubt is when I believe and something happens in my life to unsettle that. Unbelief is saying, I'm just not going to believe that. You know what I'm saying? There is a difference. I've been a believer for all my life. Now, I, I haven't been a Christian all my life. Don't, don't mishear what I said. But I, I've always believed. I, I mean, my mama took me to church nine months before I was born. Okay? And she was there every time the doors were open. Any of you like that? You remember? And I, some, of you, some of you, I understand you didn't come to church till you were 20 or, or 30 or 40 or 50. I understand that, and I'm glad you came. But I'm just telling you, for me, that makes me special. It's just who I am. For me, I've been in church all my life. So I've always believed. I was just raised to believe that the Bible's the Bible, and whatever the Bible says is pretty much done. That's just the way I grew up. Now, I know that that's not true today, and I know that many of you question that. And I'm going to say, I understand that. And it's okay, but when you come to a crisis of belief, at some point you've got to decide... What are you going to believe or not believe but for me i've always been a believer and and early on my life Listen, you may doubt this. I'm just telling you. I don't understand it all I'm, just telling you what happened in my life in my life when I was nine years old I gave my heart to jesus christ and 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 he's been in my heart of my life ever since and I can't explain that to you I don't know all the dynamics of that. I'm just telling you it happened and I'm just telling you the difference he made in my life. I've always been a believer. And at the age of nine, I gave my life to him and said, Lord, I do believe that you are God and became flesh and that you died on the cross for my sins and that you were resurrected just like you said to prove that what you said is true. And I believe you rose and went to heaven. I believed all that long before I ever stepped foot on the Mount of Olives. You say, do you understand all that at nine? <laughs> no understand all of it, but I believed it however as you might imagine days happened in life and I grew a little bit and then my thinking was challenged a little bit and then circumstances came into my life and professors came into my life and books came into my life and articles became into my life and and some of those shook the foundations of my belief and my faith and I began to what doubt I wouldn't say I didn't believe but I would say I doubted how can this be wait a minute that's the same question Mary asked that's the same question Zechariah asked maybe it's okay for me to ask that question how can this be The truth of the matter is that sometime Mary, Zachariah, and Eddie came to a crisis of belief. And I had to decide. I knew my doubt was taking me somewhere. I just had to determine where it was going to take me. And so because I chose to believe, It strengthened my faith. Even my doubting strengthened my faith. You say, how did that happen, Pastor Eddie? Because I had to start thinking about why I believe what I believe. I no longer could just say, well, I just believe it because mom and daddy taught me that way. Can I just tell you something? Just because mom and daddy taught me that way, mom and daddy could have taught me anything. That's not enough. I had to search for myself. I had to dig deep into the scriptures. I had to study the scriptures. I had to see could I believe? Can this be? And I thank God he led me to a place of believing. And yeah, I believe it. So now, whew, now, 52 years later, you ask me. So do you believe that Jesus lived and died, that God came down from heaven into a baby, into a stall? Do you believe that Jesus actually walked on this earth in a place called Galilee and Judea and Samaria? Do you believe that Jesus actually died on a cross and that he rose three days later and that he ascended into heaven and he's now in heaven ruling over everything? Do you believe that? I would say, yep. Sure do. So now, 52 years later, can you explain that? (laughs) On a good day, I try, (laughs) but... For the most part, not really. But I believe in a God who is way bigger than my understanding, who is way bigger than my knowledge, and way bigger than my mind. You're saying that's a cop out. Eh. You're saying that because you've not believed. There's a difference. You've chosen not to believe. I doubted. Frankly, I still have doubts. Why does God do things that he... I don't approve of. Why does he do things different than I would do them? Why does he do things like that? I don't know if I can trust him or not. Come on. Don't put that church face on. You know you feel that way too. Bible writer G. Campbell Morgan said something pretty important. Could you put that last screen up, that last shot up there on the screen? That's pretty important. G. Campbell Morgan said this <clears throat> He said, If you believe God, you sometimes wonder why he allows certain things to happen. But keep in mind that there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Morgan says, Unbelief is an act of the will, while doubt is born out of a troubled mind and a broken heart. I think what he's saying is there are times that circumstances, circumstances, thoughts, minds, things shake our faith and we doubt. But unbelief is a willful act in which we choose not to believe. Which direction, where is your doubt leading you? It's leading you somewhere. It's leading you to, you're in a crisis of belief, will you believe God? Or will you willfully choose to not believe? You have a choice. It's yours to make. And some of you, you're making it right now. Pray with me, would you? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your grace. I do thank you for your kindness and your patience especially your patience toward me, us. Even when we go through seasons of doubt, even at those moments of a crisis of belief when we're trying to figure it all out, your your patience is overwhelming. And your grace is amazing. God, I pray for people right now who are in a crisis of belief. We're trying to decide do I believe? Will I believe? Or will I choose not to believe? God, would you speak to their hearts and make yourself so real to them that they know that they know? I'm not asking for a Gabriel to come and, a- and appear to them, but I am asking that the Holy Spirit of God would speak. To their hearts and reveal yourself to us and help us to know oh God it's okay to struggle with doubt as long as we don't settle in unbelief